Yeah. Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, hope you're having a nice day. It's a nice day to be in Oxford. I came down on my normal bus this morning and was surprised to find it was mostly empty, which is lovely, because, um, you know, it's a bus. And uh, yeah, when I came in, it was all the clouds parted and, and it was lovely and sunny. So hopefully you're all having a great time. Clouds uh, were an obsession of mine when I went on this trip that I'm going to tell you about um, to try and see the Northern Lights, which was a trip run by the alumni office here. Um, and I went to talk about Aurora and to try and see some Aurora, which I hadn't seen. Uh, but of course, the clouds are your enemy uh, on, on, when you're out looking through the uh, Northern Lights. So, the idea behind this talk is that I will tell you what the aurora are. I mean, the title of the talk is The Mystical Northern Lights. Uh, hopefully, after this, you won't think they're very mystical, uh, but it doesn't make them less beautiful, of course. Uh, the photo you might not really very well be able to see behind me, uh, just because it's very bright in here. Uh, this is a problem astronomers always have. So, hopefully you can also see that as well. Oh! Hey, there we go. Seeing is, better. <laughs> Seeing is better. Right, so this is the solar system. Uh, this was a graphic produced by the International Astronomical Union back in uh, 2006 when we demoted Pluto. You can tell we demoted it because they, they lowered it down on the picture. Um, this is the solar system. There's something wrong with this picture, though, which a couple of friends of mine pointed out very quickly when they first saw it. So they made the correct version. Anyone spot the, uh, the problem with this? Scale. this is, a scale is part of the problem, but it was more the shading was wrong. Um, in the previous picture, I don't know what's lighting up the planets. So, so uh, the solar system is very big and it's empty, very empty. It's also full of stuff, which is a bit paradoxical. Uh, we live on the third planet out from the Sun, Earth, and uh, you probably know the other planets are Mercury, Venus, then Earth, Mars, Jupiter, which is the biggest one, Saturn with the rings, uh, Uranus, Neptune, and then we have uh, Pluto, which is now a dwarf planet, and there's Eris, which is another dwarf planet. And the solar system is really big, and the reason I'm starting a talk about the aurora by talking about the solar system is that the aurora are all about the way the sun and the earth interact. It's about the relationship through this big chasm of space between the very big bright thing that's making it a lovely day uh, and the very, very small thing that we live on. Uh, the earth is a lot smaller than the sun. Um, the earth could fit a million times inside the sun, which gives you an idea of how big the sun is. And the sun is uh, eight light minutes away, 93 million miles. So we actually see the sun as it was eight minutes ago, which is a, a thing that happens to us a lot in astronomy. Uh, but it's strange to think that it happens to us every day. Um, the Earth, if you were to put it to scale um, against the sun, as I say, you get inside it a million times. That, that might even be too, too much of a strange number in itself. So a while back, we actually developed a walk around Oxford. Uh, where you could take the solar system to scale with the buildings that are around you. Uh, the, my initial idea was to use the Radcliffe camera as the sun. It's got a nice domed top on it. Let's uh, just, there's my planets. There's the Radcliffe camera. Nice domed top. And I thought, yes, we'll use that as the sun. We'll call that the sun. And then we'll walk out and we'll place the planets to scale. 
So you can imagine that, that at that sort of scale, the Earth is, is well, pretty small, but, but not that small. And where would you walk to? Um, the problem is that you have to walk out of Oxford before you hit, really, the first couple of planets. So I rescaled. I looked on the radical camera again, and near the top, there's a smaller dome that you can see on top of the bigger dome. And I thought, well, we'll use that as the sun instead. And even then, it turned out that to walk the length of the solar system, I would have to walk more or less to Banbury. The solar system is very big. So the way I did it in the end was I went up one more step on the Radcliffe camera, and, and I looked at that large orb. There's a metal orb on the top. It's about this big. And that's the sun. Great. And at that scale, the Earth is about the width of my fingernail. So that felt very nice and physical. And then you can walk out. So Doing that, Mercury is placed just at the edge of the building of the Radcliffe camera. And the next planet, Venus, is just on the railings, just slightly outside. It's where it is on this picture. And from there, you see, you can walk out. And it's a nice scale since you're in the city. We are at about the distance of Jupiter at the moment from the Radcliffe camera at this scale. And Jupiter would be the size of a golf ball. So if you can, if, I don't know if you've walked past the Radcliffe camera today, anyone, but from where you've walked to here, Jupiter, the size of a golf ball, the sun is this big over on top of the Radcliffe camera. That's a long way relative to the size of those planets. But that's the solar system. It's big and it's empty. Um, Earth, incidentally, on that scale, was just on a bollard next to the uh, alleyway out of the Radcliffe Square. And Mars is just at the other end of that alleyway. And if anyone wants the details, we have uh, a leaflet and a whole walk you can do uh, right through down to the riverbank. But let's go back to the sun. This is our 50 centimetre, well, 60 centimetre big uh, orb on top of the Radcliffe camera. And you're used to it being the very bright thing that you sometimes see from the UK. Um, and that after some period of months, you begin to wonder if it still exists. Um, but when you do see it, it's big and it's bright. And it's often associated with being peaceful, with being serene, lying on a beach with this, the, the waves coming over you in the sun. All this stuff. Well, the, the problem with that image of the sun is it's quite wrong. The sun is a violent, erupting place, and this image does that no justice whatsoever. But this image shows you something important that we'll come back to, which is sunspots. You've probably heard of sunspots. You might have seen sunspots. Um, if you project the disk of the sun using a, a pinhole camera technique, or if you're with a professional with a filter, but you, it's better to project these things, you can see these sunspots. And the cool thing about sunspots is they, they belie something that's really going on on the surface of the sun. Well, this is the sun as we see it, visible light. But there's a whole electromagnetic spectrum that's much wider than what we can see. Radio waves are part of it. X-rays, microwaves are all different wavelengths of this electromagnetic radiation that we see with our eyes as light. We see a very, very tiny fraction of it. Uh, so if we just step outside of that a bit into the ultraviolet regime, the sun looks a bit more like that. Now, that's kind of a cool picture of the sun. And you can see the, the sunspot group uh, that, I was just point, that you could just see on the previous slide is up in that sort of brighter patch near the top. And that's because sunspots are part of this intense magnetic activity that's going on on the surface of the, the sun all the time. The, the sun is an enormous ball of what's called plasma. And this means it's charged particles, it's protons and electrons all flying around each other and bubbling away under the, the energy that's coming out of the sun. And all those charged particles moving at great speed creates magnetic fields. 
Now on this picture, if you look at the, the very top, you can see some loops and spikes coming out of the surface of the sun. And you'll see some more of those in a minute. And this is where magnetic field lines start to loop around and build up like this. And you get these uh, field lines containing charged material. They come up and they loop out of the surface of the sun and material flies around in a big loop. And so sometimes these build up because tension builds up in these lines. And you end up with these things that pop off the surface of the sun. They, they look very impressive. And if you can observe the sun, as I say, with a professional through a, a telescope with a filter, you can actually see them with the naked eye. Uh, but you don't need to do that because you can see them here. So let's go more into the UV. This is uh, even higher energies. And now you can really start to see the structures I'm talking about. You can see these big loops and field lines coming around on the surface of the sun. You can see some really big ones on each side of the sun as well. Uh, just where, the, the way we look at it, it means that that edge effect shows those off better. Now we're going to zoom out slightly. Um, this is, these are all taken with instruments that are in orbit, by the way. Uh, now we zoom out and we see the atmosphere of the sun. And you can see, uh, well, I've just kept the previous image there so that you, you get a sense of the scale of the fact that we've zoomed out. You'll see there's an awful lot of stuff streaming out from the sun into the solar system. Zooming out again, you can see that goes a long way. What you're seeing in this picture is uh, most of the space between the Earth and the Sun, but viewed from the Earth, more or less. So if Mercury or Venus were to be in between us and the Sun, you'd see them in this picture. Um, this is a really big picture, and you can see that the streams of stuff coming off the Sun uh, are visible and, and extend right out into the solar system. Uh, and at this point, I'm just going to, we had a bit of a, a technical problem when we set up this slide, this talk, but the videos, yeah, here we go. The videos are definitely worth seeing. So that's, that's the wrong one. That's the one. This is a video from NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory, just looking at one of these magnetic loops on the sun. Now, the bit I want you to look at is actually uh, the, the top bright part. I mean, look at it all, by all means. Um, but the top bright part, that there's gonna, you're going to see one of these loops build up uh, as, as time goes by. Now, this has been fast-forwarded. This is what you're actually seeing is a few hours condensed into a few seconds. So here we go. See, there's that loop building up. Isn't that amazing? And what's happening is that energy in these magnetic field lines is, is, is growing and the magnetic field lines grow and they loop and contain more and more material as they go around. So what can happen though is that uh, those magnetic field lines can break. And when they break, I've got to find you that one now, you see. When they break, the material contained within the loops is flung outward. And we call this a coronal mass ejection, a CME. And this is a video of one. Now, in this video, we're looking at this from the perspective of the Earth again. So you're going to see a coronal mass ejection fly out into the solar system in another direction, away from us. But they do come toward us as well. They go in all directions. So here we go. It's big, right? <laughs> it's billions of tons of material moving at millions of miles an hour. It's, uh, it's quite, quite a big thing. So. Excuse me, are these solids or is it just gas? 
It's, it's plasma, it's this charged material, so it's protons and electrons just flung out. So it's, it's more like a gas than, than any of the others, yeah. So here we have some, some sunspots, and sunspots are basically one of our ways of seeing some of this magnetic activity when we look at the sun with the naked eye. So this is a close-up of a sunspot. It only looks dark because it's darker than the extremely bright surface of the sun. It's still thousands of Kelvin and quite bright it, it normally, but we've changed the contrast in this image. And you can see around the sunspots lots of contorted lines. And these is, this is where the surface of the sun, which is split into these pockets that we call granules, um, are being twisted by the magnetic field lines, the same magnetic field lines you saw before. And in fact, more or less, this is a nice way of putting it, you're seeing these loops form where there are magnetic pairs on the surface. So sunspots form at the base of these magnetic <coughs> pairs. And so they let us see uh, what's going on. Um, this is a, a peculiar graph, so I, I should explain it to you. It's called the, a butterfly diagram. Time goes along the bottom. And here we're seeing things from 1985 to 2011. And this axis is the latitude on the surface of the sun. So when sunspots are first seen, they're recorded on this plot, and we show where their latitude is relative to when they were first seen. And what you see is that sunspots aren't just these random occurrences on the surface of the sun. There's a pattern to the way sunspots appear. So at this point, so we're about 1987, 1988, we start to see sunspots appear at relatively high and low latitudes. You can think of this as a, a, a sort of symmetrical uh, effect. This is the equator of the sun running through the middle. Uh, so these very high and low latitudes. As the years go by, so up to 1994 roughly, you see that they start to appear more near and nearer the equator. And at this point, there's a change that occurs. The cycle resets itself, starts again, and we have another cycle there. And that period is about 11 years. And this is the, the solar cycle, the sunspot cycle. We actually think it might not be an 11-year cycle. It might be a 22-year cycle because the magnetic field may flip in the middle. So this may actually be one complete cycle rather than two. But the point is that as the years go by, the sunspots occur uh, at different frequencies and in different places on the sun, but in a predictable way. And we've been watching sunspots for a really long time. We've been watching them for hundreds of years. And this is a butterfly plot going back to the 1880s. And so you can see that that 11-year cycle occurring over and over again. And on the chart underneath, which I'm probably in the way of, oh, no, I'm not, um, you can see here this is the, the number of sunspots in the same cycle. And you can see that that doesn't stay consistent either. The sun is not that regular in a sense. It's, it's having more and less sunspots in different cycles. So you can see just in the early 19, well, around 1960, in fact, sunspot cycle 19 was pretty active. You had an awful lot of sunspots. There was a lot of magnetic activity. More sunspots mean more solar storms, more of these mass ejections from the surface. What's going on here in this cycle is that magnetic field lines on the surface of the sun are being wound up. The sun is not a solid body. It rotates faster at the equator than it does at the poles. It takes something like 20 to 25 days to go around at the equator. 
but it takes more like 30 at the poles. So there's a differential in that rotation. It's faster in the middle. So if you start your cycle with nice regular magnetic field lines, then as time goes by, after one rotation, two rotations, three, you can see that the magnetic field lines are being wound up around the sun. And it's the magnetic field lines that get knotted up that start to form these sunspots. So the sunspots get dragged from the higher latitudes down to the lower latitudes during the 11-year cycle. After that, something very strange happens, and the whole system breaks, and everything goes a bit chaotic for about <coughs> six months, and then it settles back down again, and then we start all over again. Um, you can imagine it gets so wound up that it essentially resets itself. And so this goes back to 1600. These are observations of sunspots. Uh, you've got the, uh, around 1960, you can see that big peak we had earlier. And we can go all the way back. Uh, in the early 1800s, there was something called the Dalton Minimum, uh, which is when we had relatively few sunspots for, for a couple of decades. But going back even further into the, the 1650 to 1700 range, we had very few sunspots, and that's called the Maunder Minimum. And sometimes that's referred to uh, as a period in history called the Little Ice Age. And there is thought to be a, a connection between what's going on on the sun and what's going on on the earth in terms of our climate and our weather. And that, that could be easily explained by things like, well, when stuff comes off the sun and bel belches out into the solar system, it, it interacts with the earth, it delivers energy to the earth. It may seed clouds, for example, and that changes our climate slightly. So there's a relationship that we are understanding better and better now as the years go by that's to do with the, the solar cycle and the sun. And this is important. Um, you know, you hear about climate change in the news and things, and there's a confusion that goes on. Um, you, you will often hear people say, well, it's not climate change, it's just the sun is changing and that's having an effect on our climate. Look at this plot. Well, it's not as simple as that. This needs to be disentangled from the greater effect of climate change, which is man-made. And so we have this, these two competing factors going on. This is something we're beginning to understand. We understand better all the time. So understanding this helps us understand what part of climate change is man-made and how much of it and things like that. So it's quite a, quite a, a current topic. Here's the UV version of the solar cycle. I rather like this one. This is 1996 to 2006. So 1996 is roughly a minimum, as was 2006. And at 2001, you've got the peak. And you can see just by looking at it in UV, I think they're taken at the same point each year, uh, you can see the sun gets very, very active in the middle. Here's a fantastic picture. This is an enormous coronal mass ejection being thrown off the surface of the sun. Uh, these kinds of images are all available online. This is one of them. There are lots of these. We are studying the sun in great detail at the moment because we want to understand how it affects the Earth. So what happens if one of these things hits us? I said earlier you saw one that went off to one side. Well, what happens if it comes right toward you? Well, strangely enough, in 1859, on September the 1st, in fact, uh, somebody saw one happen. A guy called uh, Richard Carrington. I think his name was Richard. I'm getting a nod from my colleague at the back. It is Richard Carrington. He was observing sunspots, um, and he was looking at, through a telescope uh, with a filter at, at, uh, at the sun, and he was drawing this lovely diagram of some sunspots that he saw. And he observed a very strange thing. He saw 
Uh, two white, what he called two white horseshoes appear, which are drawn on this image, just they're labeled A and B. He, he saw two white horseshoes and then the entire image went white. And so he saw a flash, of what he thought was a flash off the surface of the sun. A few hours later, aurora was seen all over the world in ways they hadn't been seen in decades. This was an enormous explosion off the surface of the sun that this man happened to see the inception of on the surface. Aurora was seen in the Caribbean from this thing. It went all the way down and all the way up uh, on the earth. Sparks flew from telegraph poles, which was quite alarming if you were a telegraph operator at the time. Uh, and this was called the Carrington event. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's possibly still one of the biggest events that we've ever experienced. But these major solar flares don't have to be that big. They can be smaller, but they can be dangerous. These things can interact uh, with the Earth's atmosphere and produce strange effects. They can interact with man-made things on the Earth. There was once a power cut in Canada caused by a solar flare. This solar flare came down, hit the atmosphere, sent uh, currents flying through all the, the wires and fried the system temporarily. Uh, it's worth understanding how these things work. If you're on the space station, you really want to know about these things because they can kill you if they're really, really big. If a Carrington event went off when people were in orbit, that would be a problem and we need to understand that better. They also interact with satellites in orbit as well. Uh, here's a, a, a section of history. So we had that, that, that period of intense solar activity around 1960. This is the decade 1964 to 1974, roughly. And it shows you all the major solar flares that, that occurred. Uh, and this is an interesting part of history to have chosen. And it's not a coincidence if you're spotting the connection. This is during the Apollo missions. So here's all the missions that went to the moon. Now, if you're on the moon in what many would call a flimsy spacesuit, um, and you're roving around, you're getting rocks, you're playing golf, you're planting flags with wires in them, uh, all the things that people do on the moon, um, then you probably want to know if there are solar flares going on. The problem was that they didn't know how they would do this. Uh, they knew they might be a problem. They weren't entirely sure. They, they had a kind of rudimentary system running for people trying to warn them of a solar flare coming. Uh, how they would have planned to have gotten back from the surface of the moon in time, I don't know. Um, they probably just wouldn't have done. Um, and in fact, these flares here, you can see one is very close to Apollo 14. And I'm just going to add to this graph two lines. One line will show you when, that so when, when a solar flare's proton flux would cause uh, sickness. Uh, such sickness you would have to return to Earth. Uh, and also another line for when it would kill you. So you can see here that the one just before Apollo 14, had that happened while they were up there, they would need to have turned around and come back. Between Apollo 16 and 17, there was a fatal solar flare. It would have killed them. Um, and if we ever plan to go out there and do, do serious space stuff, whether that's mining asteroids or going to Mars or going back to the moon, whatever it is, we need to figure out how we're going to sort this out. I just like putting that equation up in talks. Um, it is actually relevant. Uh, this is Einstein's famous E equals mc squared. E equals mc squared is relevant here because the energy that's contained in these enormous explosions is derived from it. Uh, the sun uses this equation, as it were, uh, to, to, to convert matter 
into energy. It, the sun is constantly fusing hydrogen atoms together into helium atoms, and that generates uh, a fair bit of energy. It, 0.7% of the mass in that interaction converts to energy. So we take that mass, we multiply it by the speed of light squared. That gives us a lot of energy. And 4 million tons of material are converted into energy every second on the sun. That's a lot of energy, which is good because it keeps us alive. Um, so E equals mc squared uh, is powering the sun, and I'd just like to include the equation. But there's an awful lot of energy coming out of the sun. Uh, 3.6 times 10 to the 26 watts. That's the, you know, it's a lot of light bulbs, even energy saving ones. Um, at the surface of the Earth, that translates to, well, if you imagine taking that energy coming out of the sun and going further and further away from it, it spreads out, right, into the, the area of however far you've, you've gone to. So if you go as far out as the Earth and you imagine drawing a giant sphere all around the sun and you took all that energy and divided it over all that sphere, then you can calculate how much energy we get per square meter on the Earth. And it's, this is the answer. More or less, the Earth is round, so it does change it slightly, but uh, about 163 watts per meter squared. So meter squared, there's probably several of them on this podium I'm standing on. There's a lot of them in this room. Uh, if you ever rent an office, as I've seen from the side of buildings, this is an important number, meters squared. Uh, but 163 watts per meter squared. Again, putting that in terms of light bulbs is always quite useful for me. I think of you know, nearly three 60-watt light bulbs per meter squared, and light bulbs are rubbish. Most of their energy is in the infrared. So. Just as an aside, this is a map of the Earth showing the watts per meter squared as it actually ends up being distributed over the Earth. For a start, the equator is nearer the sun than we are, slightly, but moreover, there's a curvature to the surface of the Earth, so the radiation isn't spread evenly. It's, it's, you get less at the poles and you get more at the equator. There's also changes in terrain and climate. Well, this is one atlas averaged out. And uh, you can see, for example, you know, the Sahara Desert, as you'd expect, gets a lot more watts per meter squared than uh, Greece, Greenland or uh, us in, in, the, in the UK. The little black dots are all the surface area you would need to cover if you had a perfect solar farm to power the world. So those little black dots, if you could just put, in, put perfect solar panels to those areas, you'd have enough energy to power the world. Um, so this is why solar technology is important. We, 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 we could have much worse than perfect solar panels and do pretty well. Anyway, so the solar wind. You asked about this one earlier. What is the solar wind? It's protons and electrons. They're moving at millions of kilometers per, uh, kilometers per hour. Uh, 1.3 times 10 to the 36 particles per second, that's a hard number, so it's more easy to think of it as uh, 6 billion tons an hour. It's a lot. And why uh, is this relevant then to the northern lights? So I've talked a lot about the sun, but that's because the sun is powering the northern lights. Here's a bar magnet. Play with one of these at school? I recommend buying one. They're about six pounds online and they're just fun. Uh, iron filings, and, and this bar magnet uh, shapes the iron filings into its magnetic field lines, just like those loops on the surface of the sun were doing earlier with the plasma. The Earth has a very large magnet inside it. It has a molten core and it spins and that creates uh, a magnetic field. And that's roughly what the magnetic field looks like. It's offset from the actual north-south pole 
was slightly offset from that. So if you take your compass and you try and find the North Pole, you'll, you'll end up somewhere, well, probably in Canada, I think, uh, and you won't be in quite the right place. But the point is that it roughly aligns with North and South, and you've got these field lines that go out. And those field lines interact with the sun. So the sun spews out this, these magnetic, uh, this magnetic material, this charged material, out into the solar system, and our magnetic field stops us all being killed. So you can imagine that there's this two effects are going on here in this diagram that are worth explaining. So if I have my Earth here and my magnetic field lines coming around through the, as you saw in the previous picture, but now I turn this magnetic field facing a very powerful radiation, uh, this solar wind, the front end of it will buff it in. It will be compressed slightly by the energy coming toward me. And the back end will be free to, to, to grow, go loose and sort of flap slightly behind us. This is what protects us. Uh, but you can see there's something weird that goes on because this, the, the energy, which way around am I? The energy from the sun comes out, hits the front of our magnetic field, and is guided over behind us. And that protects us from most of the radiation. Except you can probably see that just where the poles are, you have a sort of uh, discontinuity in the Earth's magnetic field. And the radiation, a bit of it can just slip into there. And that's better shown in this diagram here. You, it's called the polar cusp. And the radiation, these yellow lines, are showing you solar radiation, that uh, this proton flux, that makes it down to the Earth. And it's funneled down to the Earth, uh, spiraled, spiraling down those field lines. So it comes in, it's like going down a plug hole, right down to the top of uh, where the magnetic pole is. And that makes uh, an, uh, an oval shape, in fact. So it's an oval, not a circle, because of the same effect that compressed the front of our magnetic field and let the, the back end grow out. And it looks like that. So that's the intensity of the solar radiation coming down onto the surface of the Earth. And red is stronger, blue is weaker. And this is called the auroral oval, because it's underneath this oval that you see the aurora. This is where they come down and they hit the surface of the Earth. Picture of aurora, there you go. Not mine. <laughs> I'll come back to later why you're not seeing my pictures of the aurora. Um, and this is a cool video. So. The Aurora Oval can be seen from the International Space Station because they fly several hundred kilometers above the surface of the Earth. So here's a video from the space station. This is what, what you would see if you had a fairly long exposure eye. You can see nighttime cities flying by, but that green curtain up there, that's tracing the Aurora Oval. This is looking toward the North Pole from Canada. And that's literally that oval seen from the side. And uh, you know, if you're on the space station, you get to see this stuff uh, probably fairly often, which is rather cool. You can also see, uh, I don't know if you can see it very well, can you see the sort of striations, the vertical striations that come down? That's that, this effect of vertical striations and a flat bottom, they call it the auroral curtain. So it looks like curtains. What's happening then? What, why do you get lights just because solar radiation hits our atmosphere? Well, you get that uh, because of, it's just physics, really. I should explain it to you. So imagine an atom uh, with a nucleus and some electrons going around the outside. 
this is, this is the model of the atom we're all taught at school. And like many subjects, and you're probably all here for a variety of subjects, I found that I went through my education and was told that every previous step had slightly lied to me. But the electrons orbit the atom like this, and that's good enough for this. And if you go and do physics degree, they'll tell you it was a lie, but never mind that. Electrons orbit in distinct energy levels, discrete energy levels, from the nucleus. This is an effect of quantum mechanics. They can only exist in certain states, depending on how many uh, molecules, uh, sorry, neutrons and protons are in the middle of the atom. They only have so many places they can exist above and below it. And that's just an effect of quantum mechanics. But what can happen is uh, energy can come into the system like that. It doesn't look like that. It's not drawn in crayon. Um, and the electron can absorb that energy and go to the level up, say, from where it is. It might go three levels up, but let's just say it goes one level up. It has to be just the right amount of energy because of quantum mechanics. And then that energy can leave. And it will, when it drops down, the electron will emit exactly the right photon of light. So it has one characteristic photon for each pair of energy levels. So if it goes from energy level zero there to one, so one to zero, that's exactly one kind of photon, one color, if you like. So what can happen is you can have lots of levels, theoretical levels outside the molecule, and you can get a high energy photon come in that raises it more than one level because, say, it's come from the solar wind. And then as the electron drops down, it will do so step by step because of quantum mechanics. And each step releases a characteristic color. So in this particular one, I have one purple photon and one red photon in crayon, but never mind. So this is what's going on. And it's because of this that we get characteristic colors. Certain molecules in our atmosphere can absorb the radiation, but only re-emit it at characteristic colors. And our atmosphere is mostly composed of nitrogen with some oxygen, which is good for us. And they give us colors. So here's a two picture of the aurora. The top one shows you uh, more or less a low energy aurora. Green at the bottom with a bit of red at the top. And that's because oxygen emits green uh, with a bit of yellowy orange and a bit of red and a tiny little bit of blue. All those different transitions being different markers. But that one basic transition in oxygen is green, the one that triggers a lot, which is why you most easily see green aurorae. Nitrogen uh, takes a bit more of a kick, so you need a higher energy aurora. But from nitrogen, you get two characteristic sets of colors, one set of green and one set of red, and a little bit of orange. And these are the colors that make our aurorae. So there we go. Just coloring it in. This is because of a conversion effect. Right, so there's a nice low-energy green auroral curtain. Uh, that's from Finland. And that's it getting with a bit more energy. So you start to see the red from the oxygen as well. Now that's the same, but this time it's come even deeper and it's started to light up some of the lower level nitrogen as well. Let's ignore that. That's just pretty. We're getting to the point in the talk where I can just show you pretty pictures. Cool thing about the sun is it's really big, as we covered earlier, and there's lots of other planets too, and they have magnetic fields. So here's an aurora on Jupiter. 
So we can observe these things on other planets as well. They get an, an oval in the same way. The size of that oval is all down to how strong the magnetic field is on the planet relative to the Sun. And here's an aurora on Saturn, which is a particularly nice picture. So we're not the only planet that gets them. Um, you need a magnetic field. So, so I think that might rule Mars out. It doesn't have much of a magnetic field. So last February, I was lucky enough to be asked to go on a trip uh, on a boat to try and see these things, uh, the aurora. I've never, never seen them before. And in return, I had to be uh, the trip's astronomer, which for an egomaniac like, maniac like me is fantastic. So um, I got to go and give some talks about the aurora. We did some d top of the deck stargazing. Uh, this was a great thing that happened while we were there as well. It was by coincidence. Uh, there was also a really cool thing happening in the night sky, which was that at dusk you could see Mercury, uh, the Moon, Venus, and Jupiter all in a line, uh, which was really cool, and a nice crescent moon, so we got to go and do, look at that too. Uh, it was cool to be able to actually show people real data, so this was the Aurora Oval on one of the days uh, that I was on, on the trip, and these things are updated several times a day, so we could print these things out and stick them up. And in fact, I learned uh, after about a day on the ship that Hertie Gruten, the company we women, do this anyway. <laughs> so, so there was me proved useless. But I could, you know, explain the colors or something. Um, <laughs> but the auroral oval, and you can watch this thing grow and shrink, and you can wait for a really cool uh, magnetic storm. So we, got, we, we had some nice times on the deck. It was probably clear a good, more than 50% of the time on our trip. Uh, but we weren't getting very lucky with the aurora. This, this oval here isn't a particularly good one. Uh, this was on day one. Uh, but we were very lucky because looking, I was watching all the websites that observe the sun, and we got to see an enormous coronal mass ejection go off on day two of our trip, which meant that we were sort of thinking, well, we're due to get back into the last port at the end of tomorrow, which will be roughly when this thing's going to hit. So we saw some aurora on the first night that were pretty nice, uh, but we, we got to see some much, much better ones a couple of days in. And it was really cool to be able to see this video, like the one I showed you earlier, of a coronal mass ejection going off and say, well, that's coming toward us and we'll be here in about 18 hours. So get out your woolens. So this was people on the deck. Now, um, I said earlier about photography. This is why I'm not showing you any more of my pictures. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm an astronomer, not a photographer, but uh, it, to, in my, to my credit, it looks slightly better on this screen. But these blue things are people um, standing on the deck of the ship that we were on, and they're watching a really beautiful aurora, which is completely destroyed by this photo. Um, someone else on the ship was a bit better at this stuff. He had a proper camera, and he was able to say it's not showing very well, unfortunately, but uh, I can show you afterwards. So we got some, some nice aurora, and these things were just drawing beautiful curtains. Uh, what doesn't pick up on the pictures at all is the purple and the red that striped the stripe above it. Um, but we saw some really nice stuff. We flew under some loops and curtains, and then a couple of hours later, it all came back up again. It was really, really wonderful. Um, this is a much better picture that someone took, but again, it's a bit dark for, for this display. And that's a cool one. Um, there, were, there were some people on the ship, thankfully, who were A, better at this than I was, and B, had a Flickr account. So I was able to go and mine their pictures afterwards. So the solar system, just to sum up, the solar system's really big, 
mostly empty, but dominated by the sun. The Earth is very small. If the Earth were a peppercorn, then Jupiter's a walnut and the sun is a beach ball. Those are three very handy things you can think about. And it's often what we can't see that's really, really important in astronomy and maybe in life. But magnetism and the ultraviolet are key to understanding how the sun works and how the sun interacts with the Earth. Uh, those auroral oval images are all done with ultraviolet, for example, as well, those, those updates. So we need to look beyond the visible in astronomy all the time. The aurora are billions of tons of material moving at millions of miles per hour. Charged particles excite molecules in the atmosphere and they create the characteristic colors. So you, you always see aurora in characteristic ways in, in certain colors. Uh, the aurora oval shrinks and grows with the solar wind. So if you get a very powerful uh, mass ejection from the sun, that's going to increase the solar wind and that's going to make it easier to see aurora, but it's also going to make the oval bigger. So you need to go slightly further south to start to see the really intense stuff. So being at the North Pole is not necessarily the most useful place to be. Um, best seen from the polar regions, though. There's no doubting that. Uh, we occasionally get uh, aurora in the northern parts of the UK. If you go to northern Scotland, you can see aurora, for example, when there's peaks of activity. Sometimes you'll see in the news people saying, oh, go outside tonight and you'll see an auroral display from Oxford. And you've really got to think, well, I'm not going to see much. Um, it's not like Richard Carrington's giant explosion. That is definitely a, a once in a, a 200 year kind of event. But hey, it's been a while. <laughs> so that's the, the end of my talk. And I'm told we have some time for questions, if anyone has any. <laughs>